Well, if you would, brothers and sisters, remain standing and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, we're going to continue examining, looking into the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And let's ask God's blessing upon us, and then I'll read from verse 9 through verse 17. Let's pray. Now, blessed God, we come to feast upon your everlasting eternal word. Lord, as we continue to examine this parable, may we see, Lord, ourselves. May we, Lord, by your spirit, have the discernment, the discretion, Lord, to examine ourselves rightly. Lord, even this morning, as we look at that particular doctrine of repentance, give us eyes to see. Give us the spiritual senses to understand, Lord, to see the value of repentance unto life. So, Lord, come now and bless us here this morning. Rise up, O Lord, and walk in our midst and give us clarity of thought. Open our hearts ready to receive the truth, Lord, contained in your word that we will leave, Lord, this gathering, blessing your name, Lord, because we have everlasting life. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We'll begin reading at verse nine. Beloved, hear the word of the Lord. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector Standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted." And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them saying, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Beloved, this morning we will take notice of the attributes of repentance unto life. That's the, the title of the message. These, we're going to look at the attributes of this publican and his confession of sin. But his repentance led to life. That's what Jesus tells us. 
That's the importance of the text. He says there in verse 14, I tell you this man went to his house justified. And that's an important note to keep in mind that the publican expressed what we know and understand theologically or what we call that repentance unto life. A couple of things that I need to mention before we get into that proper discussion is that we need to understand that repentance unto life is that initial repentance. We're not being saved, as it were, the first time every day. You can only be saved once, but that repentance unto life is that outward blossoming of the work of the Spirit of God in us, that work that's taking place in us where God is beginning to work out his will and his will for those who have been chosen before the foundation of the world that at a, a particular time in a particular place under certain circumstances, God's elect will repent of their sins and turn to him. That's repentance unto life. There's that initial, the genuine interaction with God fostered by the Holy Spirit where a sinner comes confessing their sins. So that's the first thing. And if you notice from the text, I don't know if you caught it, but you can see how in the parable, Jesus teaches that the publican sees himself. He calls himself not just a sinner. No, he says, the sinner, O God. Have mercy on the sinner. He's recognizing that he is the one. He is the offender. O God, I am the one who needs to repent of my sins. I'm the sinner. Meaning is not focused on anything else unlike the Pharisee who takes the opportunity to, you know, exalt himself by condemning someone else. Not the, fair, not the, not the tax collector, the work of the Spirit in him fosters the humility for him to be able to recognize I am in this gathering the sinner before God. Now, there's a second thing that I think we need to understand that this initial repentance is a work of the spirit. It is a work of grace. It's a gift. It's not something that people can just conjure up on their own. If you have notes or you're taking notes, you can look up two passages of Scripture that speak to this. That's Acts eleven eighteen 18 and Zechariah 12, 10. And now these passages teach us that it is the, it's a fostering of the Spirit working in our lives so that the sinner can come to that realization and remember what we talked about last week, that, that grace of genuine humility because it leads the sinner to confess their sins. 
The second thing is that this initial or genuine repentance is not something that we should rest in alone. Now, what do I mean by that? Or what does even the confession mean or the word of God mean by that? Well, it means that, yes, there is this initial repentance, but then that initial repentance flows out of that work of the Spirit in our lives where we begin regularly repenting of our sins. That that genuine work of grace in repentance flows out as a work of grace. It's an evangelical work that's working in us. It's evangelical because it is a work of grace. That's what we mean when, when you hear me talk about evangelical grace or evangelical obedience. It's, that's obedience that flows out of the work of God's grace in us. It's not anything we take credit for. We are not able to have a special club that says that we are enlightened and others are not. Sort of that Gnostic heresy. We are the enlightened ones. Others, well, not so much. No, it's a work of God's spirit. And if you go and you look up that Acts 11 passage, it was about the Gentiles also coming to that repentance unto life and those Jews at that day and during that time recognized that God had, was granting to them the grace of repentance. God is also working in these Gentiles. How did they know this? Because they were, they were genuinely repenting of their sins. And they, it was recognizable. But that this work of grace and repentance, beloved, leads to something. Now remember this. And this is why genuine repentance unto life is different than just a, being sorry for your sins. It's not the same thing. It's not feeling guilty, though guilt is involved. It's not feeling bad, though those feelings of guilt and sorrow and remorse and dissatisfaction and you know, disappointment, all of that may be true of even genuine repentance, but those things alone are not signs of genuine repentance. Why? Because it must flow out into a life of repentance and obedience. That we continue by and by as God continues to work on us with his spirit and the word of God. Remember what we confessed this morning, that we would grow in grace. We would grow in knowledge of God. We would meditate upon his word. We would pray the word of God. We would study it so that we what? Can conform our lives and practices to it. And as we, as we along the way come to those places in the word of God where we are corrected or rebuked or admonished that we would what? We would humble ourselves in repenting of our sins and turning to God in obedience. Now, a text of scripture you can write down for that point is Ezekiel 36, 31. Now, if there is ever in my ministry, across the board, a weakness that I see in people coming to profess their faith and join the church, and it's not, it's not singling any person out, it's, it's just across the board, it's the weakness of understanding repentance. 
And that's why this morning's sermon is, I think, so valuable to us in this parable. It's so, is as a treasure to us as we look at those attributes of genuine repentance. Most Christians, again, I said a weakness, when they begin talking about their sins, most understand their sins in such a shallow way that these are bad things. And, 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 and they are bad. But that's not how they're typically described in Scripture. And so we want to learn, right? What does God say about these things? How does God teach us about this repentance. Now, the, the goal for us this morning is that we would certainly look at our confession and see if this confession is valid and true and real, that it holds up. Now, it can have all the elements. They could be weak, but they could still contain all the elements. So I don't want you to misunderstand that if you didn't do exactly in this strategy that I'm preaching this morning, that somehow you're not a Christian. That's not the point. But the elements must be there, right? The elements, the, the sense of it. The, you, you have to have the, the core of it for it to be genuine and true and real. And it has to be genuine. And to be genuine, it must be well, worked in us by the Spirit, and if it's worked in by the Spirit, then it is going to contain certain attributes that we need to see in ourselves. Now, let's look at the attribute, and I touched on it last week, but I'm going to follow up with it more so this morning, and, and that is really understanding the, that apprehension of one's sin. How do we come to that, that understanding of that initial sin. Well, there are, I think, three things to understand. Number one, that sin's destructive and dangerous. Now, I'm going to give you three of these. Now, sin's destructive. It's dangerous. Number two, it's repulsive. Because if the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, right, Holy Spirit is working in us, that that understanding that sin is dangerous, then it also must be repulsive to him, to a holy God. That sin is repulsive to us. And thirdly, that sin is contrary to a holy and righteous God. Those are three things in that initial apprehension of sin. When you think about sin's destructiveness, it's, it's dangerous. What do we mean? What am I talking about? Well, initially I could say, well, ultimately all who refuse to repent of their sins are going to end up in hell. Hell is called in the scriptures eternal damnation, eternal judgment eternal fire, the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, the place of darkness, the place, nothing good. A place where 
God's presence is only there in fury. Now, God is everywhere. You know, a lot of people will say, well, God is not in hell, and so therefore, it'll be a great place. You you know, some of these militant atheists are so cavalier and so audacious in their, uh, uh, you know, attack upon God, they would make outlandish statements like that. But that's not actually accurate. Well, the Christian gospel is and doctrine is that God is everywhere. David said, right, in the psalm, he said, if I go to the highest heavens, you're there. If I go to the deepest place in the earth or Sheol, the grave, wherever, you are there also. But how is God there in hell? He is there in fury. He is there in judgment. I I don't remember where I picked this up, but it didn't originate with me. The thought there that I read in one of the Puritan writers was that even in hell, there will be cursing of God. And every time they shake their fist to the heavens and curse God, God will thunder more wrath and fire and hell, brimstone and judgment for eternity. Their characters are not essentially changed when they are cast into hell. That is, they're cast into hell because they hate God and they will spend eternity hating God and God will judge them for an eternity for their hatred of God forever. So we need to make sure that we understand sin is dangerous. But again, brothers and sisters, as I mentioned in Luke chapter 13, verse 3, If we turn there, it's a passage that we looked at, and if you remember that it had come to Jesus' attention that there had been some tragedy, some some community tragedy, a a tower had fallen, and some of the zealots had been uh, killed, if you will, And and it talks about in verse 1, who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And I I want you to know this is the sense side of it. In this life, beloved, things, tragedies happen. Tragic events happen. This life as John tells us in John 3, that the, that the unbelieving world remains under the wrath of God. Things happen. There are temporal judgments. And there is this sights and sense that, wow, what if that tower had fallen on me? What if I had been among those zealots that Pilate killed? Where would I be today? You travel up and down the interstate, you're constantly seeing wrecks, car crashes. You walk into the hospital, you see all ages. It's not just filled with old, infirm people. It's infants all the way up to the aged. In this life, beloved, it is full of temporal judgments. And we can see this. Our nation has been under for decades the judgment of God. 
And God continues to allow us to flounder and judge our sins, nation, national sins with more sins. Continue to give us. You think you want, you want atheism? Here's what it looks like. And you can see the cultural mess, confusion, and hatred that our, well, our nation is turning into this nation of hate. Turmoil, chaos, destruction. The Spirit works in God's elect to begin to identify these things. They can see these things. And then they begin to ponder in their own hearts, where would I be? How would I fare out if I crashed on I-75? If I just dropped dead of a heart attack like these athletes? Where would I be? Where would I spend eternity? I am, begun, I am beginning to be concerned about my life in eternity. The work of the Spirit. And then, beloved, Psalm 51, verses 2 and 4. David, the emphasis here, and this again is the work of the Spirit, is, is that we see from the Word of God in David's repentance that he just doesn't use a very uh, a minor point of confession. He uses different words describing different kinds of sins. Wash me thoroughly from my guilt. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my wrongdoings. There's sin and wrongdoing. My sin is constantly before me against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. There's three different words, Hebrew words, he uses to describe his sinning. He's, he's catching them all. Lord, I'm guilty of these kinds of sins. I'm guilty of these types of sins. And I'm guilty of these types of sins. Lord, and all of them are evil in your sight. Where does that come from? That comes from the work of the Holy Spirit. We have to produce something more than a common, um, you know, feeling bad for our sins. Now, much of it is this. Look, look, there are certainly some cultural ramifications here. We've gotten away from people bearing responsibility for their, well, terrible actions, right? But there is a God that's going to bring that responsibility home. We're all responsible for our thoughts, for the way we talk, and for the way we live, and we will all bear that responsibility. And God's gonna hold us to it. David recognizes his own responsibility, and he uses different words that, in, that captures the essence of his sinning against God. He wants to make sure, Lord, I want you to know it is evil in your sight. None of these are good. The little ones and the big ones, they're all evil and of course, we also must come to that apprehension in the work of the Spirit in Romans 7, chapter 7, verse 7 through 12, right? It's all about understanding that God is holy and his law identifies sin. We glorify in this country rebellion. 
Walt Disney movies glorify children spurning their parents' counsel. We, we highlight, we, we, we glorify rebellion and, and, and rebels. And beloved, that will lead to everlasting death if not repented of. It will. God's word, his law is the standard. That law flows from his character. When we read in the word of God and we come across these convicting passages, brothers, don't sh- brothers and sisters, don't shut your Bible thinking that you somehow escaped this written word, but this is nothing more than a reflection of a holy God in heaven who sees all things, who knows all things, who knows what you're thinking right now. Well, he knows what we think all the time. So let's understand that this initial movement of this genuine repentance unto life begins with an apprehension of the destruction of sin and its danger and its opposition to God. It's a sinning against God. And that, that can never be good. Who, who can stand before God and fight him? Who's going to stand before God on judgment and they go, oh, 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 wait a minute, I done had enough of this. Now, you might do that to your parents and get away with it. You might do it to your teachers and get away with it. Hey, you might do it to your boss and get away with it. You won't get away with it with God. His presence will be so holy and majestic and powerful You will stand before him with your mouth shut because his splendor will be overwhelming of his holiness. And you will hear what he has to say and he will be the only one talking. And then you will be cast into hell if you have not repented of your sins. If you fall into this world and culture of glorifying rebellion, you will suffer the consequences of that action. Secondly, secondly, so we know there's not just this apprehension of understanding the the danger and how sin is opposed to God, but secondly, and we see this, right? I mean, look, let's go back to, now we see all of this in the publican. Now, where? Well, first of all, because they go up to the temple. He goes up to the temple. Why is he going up to the temple? He's going up to the temple at the prescribed time of worship. The publican is going up to the temple at the prescribed time to do what? To present himself before God. In the means given to him to present himself Just like you here this morning, you are before God. In a spiritual sense, you are before God. God is before you. He is walking in our midst. By his own promise, he is here. 
in conviction. He is here in, in that, that the, the overwhelming emotion of peace, security, all of the blessedness, but also all of the, the admonishment and the rebuke too, because he loves, listen, there's not a child of God that does not suffer rebuke and correction. Amen? In fact, Hebrews tells us that if we do, if we're never corrected, we prove not to be a child of God. That God, just like an earthly father will discipline his children, God also disciplines his children. So we have to see, beloved, that there is not just this, this, this publican going up, this tax collector going up to the temple. Why does he go there? Because he's obviously has been moved by the Holy Spirit. He's come under the conviction of his sin and he's bringing himself before God. He's maybe heard the gospel, maybe heard John the Baptist, maybe he heard Jesus. Whatever the case may be, something has stirred his heart and now the Spirit of God is working in him now to go present himself. This is dangerous. I cannot continue in my sin. I need to go repent of it. I need to go meet with the Lord. I need to deal with this. I need to go offer the right sacrifices for this, my sins. The second thing we see in the publican is an apprehension of God's mercy. Now, what does this mean? It's, it's the belief, that is, the, 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 the tax collector had come to the understanding, the intellectual belief that he had received enough evidence that God was merciful and that God would hear him and receive him. Now, it's not enough to just call. It's not enough just to, 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 to roar the need of repentance, is there? I think deep down we all know that we fall short. But you also must have this understanding that God is merciful and he will forgive you of your sins. He will cleanse you. He will make you clean. He will wash you with his spirit and word and he will set you on solid ground to walk with him. There would be no need to come before him. I mean, if it's all just thunder then we would be foolish to come before God just to be cast out. So you must have the understanding when you come to this apprehension of genuine repentance that that God is merciful. He will forgive me and he will wash me and make me clean. How, why else would the, tax collector go and present himself before the face of a holy God because in this understanding he had heard that God's merciful that God will forgive him that God will wash him and make him clean that God will give him a new heart he will take away his heart of stone and give him a fleshly heart that beats to the love of God And we see that. He comes before. We see all of this humility and the components of it, but he comes to this apprehension that, you know, God is merciful. And I'm going to go confess my sins to him. No one else. Now, if he sinned against people, he would certainly do this. If you look at 
chapter 19, we certainly have our, uh, Luke 19, what do we see? Zacchaeus, you can read about his conversion. I think Luke masterfully puts a lot of these stories and parables and texts together to lead us to just to continue to enforce everything we're even talking about this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What is Paul teaching us here? What Paul teaches us here, we have a reason to come before God. Yes, we were born in sin. We are dead in our sins. We are part of the family of Satan. But, verse 4, one of the most important conjunctions in all the Bible, but. All of these things being true about us. Yes, we're dead. Yes, we're part of the family of Satan. Yes, we continue to wallow in our sins. But God being rich in mercy. Now, why is God rich in mercy? Well, the text tells us, he says right there, he says, because of his great love with which he loved us. And you're gonna have to let this permeate into your heart. I mean, I know we reform folks, we can debate all day long about who God loves and who God hates. And there's value in that. But when anybody picks the Bible up and they open up to that text and they read those words, they are motivated to repent of their sins and to turn to God in mercy. Why? Because God is rich in mercy. Why? Well, he's rich in mercy towards all those whom he has called before the foundation of the world because of the great love that he has set upon them. And God is rich in mercy and he is ready to be merciful to all who repent and confess their sins. And he's ready to give them everlasting life in Christ. Amen. God is ready. He's rich in mercy. Brothers and sisters, part of that repentance unto life is grasping and understanding and apprehending the mercy of God. And that's what the publican does. He comes to the temple. Yes, he's humbled by his sin. Yes, he's humiliated by his sins. Yes, he feels grieved and, and disappointed in all of those emotions of his sin. But he comes to God because he has heard God is merciful. And the third thing is, and we've talked about it, I don't need to spend a whole lot of time here, but there is a, the spirit also works this grief and hatred for sin. Now, I'm not talking about just, I hate that I did this to you. You didn't like what I did, it made you angry, we're we're not doing well together, I hate what I did to you. That's not the kind of hatred and grief we're talking about here. We're talking about the kind of hate and grief over one sin that compels us and drives us to confess it before God. We're not just talking about, I, I feel bad, I upset you. You know, 
You know, I, I don't know how many times I've been in counseling situations, particularly with siblings or husbands and wives, and it's like, you know, if I hurt you, I'm sorry. <laughs> if I hurt you. Well, that's why you're there, right? That's why we have problems. And that's not repentance. That's not contrition. That's not one that's broken. That's not one that is grieved over their own sin, sorrowful for their own actions. That's not, that's not it. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Listen to what the apostle Paul writes. He says, now I rejoice not that you were made sorrowful. And he says, I don't rejoice because you're made sorrowful. But that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us, but through the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And there's way too much manifestation of that worldly sorrow among God's people. Paul, well, here's what Paul's saying. Listen, I don't rejoice over the regret you have, the sorrow that you are experiencing over your sins. However, that sorrow is worked in there by the Holy Spirit to lead you to what? To salvation. Here, here's, here's how that sorrow and grief works. I deserve everlasting damnation. I deserve it. You know why I deserve it? Well, because I've been a God-hater most of my life. I've loved unrighteousness. I've loved immorality. I've hated any type of responsibility. I only do what I have to do to get by. I am at war with most things that are good. And it's the facts. And you come before God and you go, I am grieved. That's who I have been. I am, I am worthy of judgment. But that's the emotion and the mental acuteness that leads us to confessing our sins and to everlasting life. The question is, and this is where the publican is, isn't it? This is where, the, this is where he is. He won't even look up to heaven. He's like, I, I'm a sinner. I, I, listen, I've robbed people. I've swindled people out of their livelihood. I've taken advantage of little old widows. And I've robbed them of their income to build my treasury. I am unworthy of your mercy, O oh God. I am an evil person. I won't even look up to heaven. I will beat my chest in this. It's not fake. And we know it's not fake because Jesus said he went away justified. That beating of his chest is a symbol. It's a sign of how unworthy he really saw himself. That's what this is getting at. That's what this is driving home. Psalm 97, verse 10, it says, Hate evil, you who love the Lord. A deep sorrow, brothers and sisters, for sin, and a deep hatred for the things that offends God. You know, so much of the church 
I mean, really, so much of the problems that we face, experience in the church, I mean, so much of it could be remedied if we ask one question. Does this offend God? Let's not, look, let's not, oh, does this offend our longstanding membership? Does this offend our most, uh, you know, wealthiest members? Does this offend the eldership? Oh, does it offend God first? And it must be examined in the light of God's word. It may or may not offend the eldership. It may, may not, it may or may not offend the oldest members of the church. It may not do any of those things, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't offend God. And then lastly, well, two other things, very simple points. When you, when you are led in this chain of the sight and the senses and the apprehension, the, the intellect driving us to this grief and hatred, well, what do we do? We turn to God, and that's what the publican did. How did he turn to God? What did that turn to God look like? It looked like repentance. Initial Repentance. It's a turning to God. It's not a turning to people. It's not a turning to your, your support group. It's not a turning to anything in this world. It's a turning to God. That's genuine repentance. Now, beloved, I mean, you're going to have to question. If you didn't turn to God, I mean, you know, not Facebook, and I have to say this, we live in such a multimedia generation, right? I mean, we're all tied to our phones. I mean, uh, just, I guess, as an anecdotal uh, illustration, I mean, I was uh, working on my tractor, and I had my phone in my back pocket, and I lost it. I, I was like, well, where's my phone? And, you know, I'm like, yeah, I had it on the tractor, and it had come out of my pocket. I went crazy. I think I went crazy because of how much they cost. And I thought, oh my, I'm going to run over this phone and not going to find it. I mean, so I had to backtrack everywhere I had mowed. And praise the Lord, I found it laying in the grass. I did not run over it. But that taught me something. We are tied. We have become so accustomed and, 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 and habitually tied to these devices. But brothers and sisters, Facebook is not the place to air your repentance. It's before God. He's the important one here. The publican is before God, confessing his sins. No, but listen, if, if all you're doing is showing all of your followers, I, I don't know, are they members, followers, friends? I don't know, whatever, whatever they are. It's just to make you look spiritual before them. Who cares? They're not going to get you into heaven. They can petition God. It can be a million signatures. You're not going unless you've dealt with God on this matter of repentance. You're not going. You have to contend with the, the original one who created all things and made man holy and upright and man chose to rebel against God in the very beginning.
True repentance, beloved, involves turning to the Lord. Acts 3, verse 19, therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. That's important. You want your sins wiped away, you gotta turn to God. Not, not, your friends may be important and yes, they can listen to you and yes, they can comfort you, but you have to turn to God. Acts 26, 20, we must redirect our lives toward God. That redirection of one's life is a sign of genuine repentance. I now love God. I now follow God. I didn't follow him before. I'm following him now. I didn't love him before. I love him now. I didn't want to please him before, but that's all I want to do now. I want to please God in Christ. And that leads us to our last point this morning. As we examine what genuine repentance unto life is, these attributes, well, this one is all of you know, and that is that is the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit working in us. That grace of repentance is obedience. Well, Jesus tells us that the publican went to his house justified. The implication there is that he's left, he left the worship a changed person, a new man. A new man implies that that old ways are just now that, old ways, right? And now he's going to walk in the newness of his faith. John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. What are the commandments? Well, the commandments pertain to, well, what we need to believe, but what mainly what we need to do. The commandments highlight in a moral fashion what our, our moral obligations are before God and man. And if we love God, we will walk in these moral obligations before God and before our brothers and sisters. It is quite plain and simple. If you are not walking in his commandments, you do not love God. And yet there will be thousands, if not millions, convince themselves that's not true. But those that have the Spirit of God working in them, those that God chose before the foundation of the world, those that God has placed his everlasting eternal love upon, and those that have come to the apprehension of his mercy, those who now have turned to God in repentance of their sins, they will walk in the newness of life and in God's commandments. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. This is our last verse this morning. Here's what John says. By this we know that we've come to know him. If we keep his commandments. The one who says I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in a manner as he walked, meaning Christ, before the Father.
in obedience. Now, beloved, listen, we've looked at five attributes of genuine repentance. It would, I believe, delight the Lord. It would aid us in our walk with him to examine ourselves in light of these attributes. Where are we? Where are they? How do we relate to them? Because the, what's, what's the impression? Well, the impression is simply this. We have the privilege of coming before this text of Scripture and have the opportunity to consider it. What a mercy. What divine providence that we can come before face, the face of God in his word and consider these things. And I pray that's exactly what we would do. Now, brothers and sisters, listen, if we've done these things, then let that fruit of that, that walk of obedience before God, well, let it flow out into that daily repentance as we walk with him. But if, we've, if we're here this morning and we've never really understood repentance, well, if you haven't understood it, I don't know how you could do it. Well, today's the day. God is rich in mercy. God is rich in mercy. And it's not accidental that you're hearing this message. He would want you to repent of your sins. Demonstrate this contrition and hatred for them. And turn to him and walk in the newness of life. Through Jesus Christ. The power of God working in you. Let's pray. Now, gracious Father, we are delighted that we could come to such a clear text of scripture to examine Lord our own repentance that we would Lord heed your word that we would drink deeply of its truth and Lord we would find ourselves conformed to it or even conforming to it Lord if there be anyone here this morning that has not come to this repentance Lord would you work in them that grace Give them the power, Lord. Give them the apprehension, the understanding, the desire to do so. Lord, that they may be like the publican who sees their unworthiness. And Lord, sees that you are just in your fury and wrath against sin because you are holy. But yet they can turn to you, Lord, in repentance and have everlasting life and go home justified like the tax collector. Oh, Lord, continue to show us your rich mercies in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.